This week's Parsha is Parsha's Lech Lecha. Lech Lecha means to go for yourself. And we meet the pivotal character that's really going to change the narrative for humanity and, of course, is going to be the forbearer of the Jewish people, and that's Abraham. I think, in my estimation, and I'm willing to argue this if someone wants to disagree, Abraham is the most transformative individual of all time. Uh, he began to change the tide, to redirect the trajectory, the direction of, 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 uh, of humanity. We look at the world today and the Abrahamic religions and Abrahamic ideals really took over the world. And I think it's, it's illustrated a little bit in the in previous two parts. So we have Bracious, we meet Adam, he makes all these mistakes, and at the end of the Parsha, we get the statement that the Almighty is disappointed with the people and the Yetzirah that Adam introduced to the world is, is just corrupting everyone and everything. That, of course, leads to the flood. And even after the flood, when Noah starts bringing in those sacrifices, so the Almighty pledges to not destroy the world again with the flood and gives him the the covenant of the, of the rainbow. But what's interesting is that the fundamental problem that really brought about this catastrophe and debacle wasn't really addressed. And in fact, uh, the Almighty himself says that the Yetzer Leva Adam Ramanurav, the, the Yetzer, the inclination, the Yetzerah that's been the foe of humanity since Adam, it's still there and we haven't solved the problem. And you find an the notion of a bris, of a covenant between the Almighty and humanity represented by Noah, where the Almighty is is almost conceding the fact that the Yetzirah is here to stay, so to speak, and almost as if the Almighty is lowering his standards for humanity. He'll, he pledges to keep them around despite them not defeating their Yetzirah. In this week's parasha, we meet Abraham, and we once again have that notion of a covenant, uh, of a bris in the form of the circumcision, and we'll, 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 we'll see in a little bit how the circumcision specifically is designed around upgrading this notion of humanity. And the, the circumcision itself is emblematic of what Abraham represented, which is a, 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 pro- a progress for humanity, where it's not just We'll survive despite our flaws. Rather, we'll actually address our flaws head on and try to repair them and fix them. We met Abraham a little bit in the previous parsha. He was traveling to Canaan, but they ultimately stopped in Haran and they just stayed there. And in this week's parsha, we find the instruction to leave your land, to leave your place of birth, and to leave the home of your father, unto the land that I will show you. Abraham is separating himself from the pack, and he's being told by the Almighty to go to what's now known as Israel, then was known as Canaan. And he goes, and of course, we'll, we'll read about the whole story. Now, the, there's a theme that really goes through this Parsha and the next. Uh, if you read the stories of this week's Parsha, Lech Lecha, next one, Vayera, you'll notice that we really are telling the story of Abraham's life. Uh, all the, well, not the complete story, but we're highlighting episodes in Abraham's life, primarily his challenges. And the Mishnah tells us that Abraham, over the course of these two parshios, are is faced with ten tests. The question we always have to ask is, 
if there's a story, if there's a narrative, it's not an instruction, it has to still be instructive. So the Torah is telling us stories about Abraham. It's really nice to know your family's history, but if it is embedded into the Torah for all eternity, it's much more than just the batch story of our forebearers. It has to be relevant to us as well. The question we have to ask with all these tests that Abraham is facing, well, how is this relevant to us? So uh, the source of this notion is, is, is the Mishra. So the Mishra tells us in the chapter of the father, chapters of our fathers, uh, in chapter 5, it says there's 10 generations from Adam to Noah and 10 generations from Noah to Abraham. And then it says the following Mishnah is there's 10 tests that Abraham, our forefather, was tested with and he uh, he was successful in all 10 tests. The Mishnah, when, it, when it's discussing the 10 generations from Noah to Abraham, it calls Abraham just like that, Abraham. Whereas when it's describing the 10 tests of Abraham, it says Abraham, our forefather. Now, why would successive Mishnahs referring to the same person, why would one Mishnah call him Abraham and the next Mishnah to add the moniker of Abraham, a forefather? What's the significance of that? And the commentaries tell us that these 10 tests, well, we're describing the 10 tests of Abraham. He's our forefather. We're linked to him via the test. The fact that he, there were 10 generations from Noah to, Ab- to Abraham, that doesn't really mean anything. That's Abraham, the individual. Abraham, who is uh, persevering and is successful in moral quandaries, that is our forefather. That is what founded our religion. And these tests became integrated into the spiritual fabric of our nation. So when we're reading the stories of Abraham's tests, yes, of course, there's stories that happened to Abraham a long time ago, but it's really outlining who we are as a nation. So it's very instructive. And in fact, it's one of the examples that, that are given here is the next week's parasha, we read the story of the binding of Isaac. Very troubling story where Abraham attempts to commit filicide, which is killing your own kid, which is very, very perplexing. But Isaac went along with that as well. Isaac is told by his father that he wants to execute him. And somehow Isaac didn't resist, which is very interesting on its own merit. But the notion of being willing to to forfeit your own life for your beliefs, that is really what's on display in that episode. And throughout Jewish history, if we learn Jewish history, we we note that this happened many millions of times where a Jew was confronted with a dilemma where they could only choose one, their beliefs or their life. And very often, the Jews were martyrs and gave up their life for God. And it's almost as if we have a knack for that. It's an unfortunate knack. But th- this is part of our spiritual DNA because Abraham gave up, uh, gave, attempted to give up his life. And Isaac, etc. Therefore, it became almost natural in the, uh, in, the, in, in the children to display those same characteristics. And I'll tell you something interesting. In the 12th century, we, there is a great Jewish scholar by the name of Rabbeinu Nissim. He was one of the Roshonim, one of the rabbis from the medieval era. And he has a book, he has many books, but one of the books that we still have today is a book called Drashos Haran, the Discourses of Rabbeinu Nissim, the Ran. 
And in it, he describes what, to us, we think is recent discoveries, the notion of someone changing genetically and that affecting their kids. Now, what he, with the way he describes it, he says is that uh, we have a certain chemical balance that determines our temperament. And if someone works on themselves, so to speak, does musar, as we'd say in our lingo, and is able to uh, conquer their negative character and overcome their anger and become someone who's more kind, etc., then that actually affects the physiology, their own internal makeup, and thus when their kids are born that are genetically uh, linked to the parents, they'll be affected by that change. It's almost, that's description of evolution, where, where the forbearer is going to change. That's not random, it's by choice, but it's going to change, and that's going to affect the continuity of the genetic line. And we have that already all the way with Abraham. Abraham is displaying characteristics that really describe us as a nation. We, we want to learn what is the background, the spiritual background of our na- nation. Read the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the ten tests that he had to face. These tests are described in ascending order. If you were successful in a test that is very, very difficult, it's no surprise to anyone that you could be successful in an easier test. So the tests have to get progressively harder. And you know the last test is the test of the binding of Isaac. I would assume when God tells you to kill your own kid, that's a test. That's a really hard test because especially someone, there's nothing harder than that because it's your own child, your only child, the child that the Almighty promised will be your legacy, plus your whole life you're standing up against uh, cruelty in the form of human sacrifice and the like. We can't imagine something more difficult than that. But what's interesting, if you look at the delineation of the various tests, you'll notice that some of the tests seem to be easier than the preceding test. Let, 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 let's give an example here. Uh, what was the first test? So there's the Mishnah tells us there's ten tests that Abraham had. It doesn't, tell us, doesn't list them one after another. So all the various commentaries in the Midrashim, they each give their own list. There's different lists out there. But one of the uh, the majority, the majority of the opinions hold that the test that the Torah does not explicitly talk about in the previous parasha, where Abraham came into conflict with Nimrod, that is the first of the ten tests. Now, what's the story? Last week in the parasha, we read about Nimrod. Nimrod is the first real king, the first real dictator, and Abraham is living in his area, and then Abraham flees. And if you just read the story, you, you, those items might not necessarily be linked. The Midrash tells us is that Abraham began his dissemination of his ideas. Abraham discovers the idea of monotheism. He starts lecturing about it extensively, engaging in debates and polemics with whomever has the gumption of trying to disagree with him. He starts to develop a movement. He has followers. And this raises the ire of the local demigod, Nimrod. And Nimrod says, oh, really? This is what you believe? This is what you're positing? This is what you're teaching? Well, I'm actually going to execute you. And the story goes. We know the story. He comes before Nimrod. There's a whole massive procession of people that are watching. He makes a huge pyre, a huge fire. And he says to Abram, okay, well, either you bow down to me, your God, or I throw you in the fire. Abram says, no. He doesn't, he doesn't bow down to him. They chuck him into the fire. And miraculously, 
Abraham survives. That's the story in the Midrash. It's not explicit in the Torah. It's intimated in the Torah. It's hinted in the Torah. That's the first story. And of course, these are very difficult conditions to try to run, to try to organize a, a grassroots movement. So he moves to Canaan, ends up in Haran. That's the previous partial. So the first test, according to the majority of the opinions, is the test of being thrown into the furnace. Nimrod says, oh, you believe, oh, you believe in this one invisible God? Crazy notion? If you don't bow down to me, I'm throwing you into the fire. Abraham says, sure, let's, let, let's do it. Get thrown in the fire. And he survives. Now, that's the first test. And the second test, the more difficult test, is the one that we start this week's partial with. The Almighty tells Abraham, go for yourself from your land, from your place of birth, from the house of your father, to the land that I will show you, and they'll make you a great nation, and I'll bless you, and I'll make your name great, and there'll be blessing, and whoever blesses you will be blessed, whoever curses, curses you will be cursed, and through you all the families of the world will be blessed. That's the content of the instruction. And it's always strange that I'm telling someone, I'm going to throw you in the fire. That's test number one. And a more difficult test is to say, oh, emigrate from Haran to Israel. It seems like it's a step down. What's the big deal? Like what? Like this this big deal of of Abraham saying being told to just leave and go and and move west doesn't seem like such a difficult test, especially if we're contending that it's more difficult than the test of potentially losing his life to preserve what he believes. So I want to try to just understand what this test is and see if it's relevant to us. If you look at the particular language that the Torah employs. They're really conveying what the idea here, here is. Leave your land, leave the place of your birth, and leave your father's home. It's not just telling him to travel. It's telling him to abandon his identity. You have to distance yourself from your family, from your homeland, from the place of your birth. Abraham is being instructed to deconstruct his identity and to rebuild himself from scratch. And in fact, one of the things that he's told here is you have to actually change your name. Why does he have to change his name? Because a name is associated with someone's identity. And for someone to be rebuilt from scratch, you gotta, your name is not Abraham anymore, your name will now be Abraham. It's still close enough. But we say, yeah, you know, it's okay, what's the big deal? But imagine I told you, like, you're no longer American. No, you're not American. You're no longer from your family. No, this is not your family. And this is not your homeland. No, you have to start from scratch and go to the farm. That is a challenge because that really gets to the fundamental essence of who we are. Who we associate, like who we identify as, that's our identity. And that's what Abraham's told you have to abandon. You have to no longer be you and recreate a new you. When he was previously challenged, go jump in the fire. It's, it's a, it's a moment of inspiration. It's one act of valor and martyrdom. To do that is hard. But to change yourself in a way that extends not just to one act, but to day in and day out, year after year, day after day, month after month, that's to sustain your change for a long time. That's very difficult. And I was thinking just to make a parallel with what we learned two weeks ago. Back to Adam. 
Adam was told after he got he donated his bone, his rib, and he has now a new wife. So the Torah tells us, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall cleave to his wife and become one flesh. Very similar wording that it's using: abandoning father of mother. And here Abraham is told, abandon your father, your homeland. I think maybe there is an element of this test that applies to anyone who wants to get married and have a successful, harmonious, and happy marriage. To do that, you have to also change your identity. You know, to leave your father and your mother, what does that mean? It means that's who you were from the earliest memory, from the beginning of your life. You have to leave that and cleave to your wife and create a new merged identity. That's that's difficult because you have to say goodbye to who you are in order to create a new merged identity of what you're going to be. The Talmud tells us, very strange, Kol mi lo isha ino adam. Whoever, whomever does not have a wife is not a man. Which is a, it's a hard thing to understand. But either way, what does it tell us? What's the bottom line here is that when marriage is happening, there is creation of a new man, of a new identity. And that is very difficult. And that indeed really sheds light about what Abraham really had to face. He had to, whatever he was till then, and he was someone who was was popular, who had a following, who had a certain initiative, had passion, you know, had drive, and and, and he had, you know, he had a, a standing in this community. Start from scratch, go to Israel, and uh, there you'll become even a much greater nation. A Raham is of Hamon Goim, which means the father of many nations. It also adds a hey. So if you actually count the uh, numerical value of Abram, it's 243. That's the number, because every Hebrew letter has a has a corresponding number. So Abram is 243. Abraham is 248. 248 is a very significant number in Jewish literature because 248 equals the amount of mitzvahs they are and also the amount of limbs and organs that someone has. So Abraham's told, as Abraham, you're imperfect. Abraham, you're achieving perfection. What's really interesting from a historical perspective is where he's told in verse 3, and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you, is indeed has been demonstrated throughout history. We know that many times the Jewish people have been kicked out of their land, have been sent into exile, have faced expulsions, and it's uncanny that when a nation is hostile to the Jewish people and they kick them out, for example, their economy starts to tank right away. Like their way of life starts to tank. And it's almost as if like it's just a direct fulfillment of this verse, those that bless you, those that are good to the Jewish people, they'll thrive and flourish. Those that are not, well, they'll still fail. Even in 1492, a couple of months after uh, the Spanish uh, and later on the Portuguese kicked the Jews out, they asked them to come back because their banking system failed and there's no more bagel shops and delis and their local entertainment industry, like, it doesn't work, you know, they, they, there's no one, there's no accountants anymore. So he starts to travel uh, as the Almighty instructed him, it's with him Lot, Lot is going to be his, his sidekick, his 
uh, on-again, off-again sidekick for the rest of the story. Abraham is 75 years old, and he leaves Haran. And who does he take with him? He takes his wife, of course, Sarai, his nephew Lot, all their possessions that they, all the wealth that they had amassed. And the last thing that he, he takes is the souls that they made in Haran. They made souls in Haran. Uh, Abraham was a soul crafter. He was able to make souls. Very strange idea. Uh, what does it mean, the souls that he made in, in Haran? So this is referring to Abraham's movement. Abraham, we're picking up a story really in the middle of his life. He's already 75 years old. The backstory, we're not told. It's interesting. We, we, we only meet Abraham as an individual, not as part of a lineage, once he starts receiving prophecy at 75. This is the first prophecy he gets, and that's the first time he really comes onto our radar. But we're already told that he's traveling with masses of people, the souls that he made in Haran, because Abraham had already begun his proselytizing efforts to teach the world about monotheism way back in Haran, and those people are so committed to him that they're also willing to leave their families and their homelands and follow Abraham. We kind of get a sense of, of, of the impact that Abraham's already made on the world, even though it's really just beginning. He already has people that are so dedicated to him that they're, they're groupies. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll follow him wherever, wherever he goes. Why would the Torah, very interesting usage of words here. Abraham's followers are the souls that they made in Haran. Now this idea is echoed elsewhere in Jewish literature, where teaching someone Torah, that equals as if someone Someone new is created. My grandfather spent his youth in yeshiva in Poland. And when he, when he arrived to yeshiva, he was confronted by a really strange phenomenon. He, there were students there, veteran students, and he randomly asked one of them how old this particular student was. He said, you know, he's two years old. It's laughably, I look like he's 30. He says he's two years old. And that's the next guy. How old are you? Well, I'm a year and a couple of months. Really strange and really bizarre. So he says, what's going on over here? He says, well, here in this yeshiva, we start life anew once we get here. Because we feel like once we get here, we are spiritually recharged and we are given realms of life that we never had before, so we start our life from scratch. It's just a dramatic idea that you know we, we believe that we have a we have a dual existence. We have our body, of course, and our, our body ages almost without us even doing anything to it. Whereas our soul, the the light, is our soul alive? Is it vibrant? Is it being tended to, or is it dormant? Is is it just there and it's just suffering because its needs are not being addressed? We look at the body and soul as mirrors of each other. Two forty eight that we mentioned. There's two hundred forty eight limbs in the body. We're actually told that there's 248 limbs in the soul. That idea suggests that just like our body needs oxygen, and it needs food, and it needs water, and it needs shelter, it needs to be taken care of or else it starts to wither away, that applies identically to our soul. Our soul also needs food and water and oxygen and TLC. That's what it needs, or else it too begins to wither away. This is actually across the entire Torah. Whenever it describes life, it's not, it's not describing the life that we're used to where someone's breathing, their heart is pumping, their brain activity uh, is, is still 
uh, overseeing their... That's not life per se. It's referring to life of the soul. For example, the verse tells us in Leviticus 18 that when someone does a mitzvah, they live. Well, there's people that live without doing any mitzvahs. It's not referring to life as our body. It's referring to life as our soul. Just like food for your body gives life, oxygen gives life, mitzvah gives life for your soul. And therefore, when the Torah describes... The Torah is a spiritual document written in physical terms almost. It's like a touch point. But when it refers to life, it refers to spiritual life. Thus, whenever it talks, whenever it says someone lived, it's always referring to spiritual life. Thus, when it says that Abraham made souls, well, Abraham's not able to give life. He's not, that's the Almighty's job. Because he infused them with Torah, therefore the Torah considers as if, it considers it as if he gave him life, and therefore we can even say that he created those souls. So he gets to Israel, and he is given the first of what's going to be several commitments from God that the land will belong to his descendants. Remember, Abram doesn't have any descendants yet. But in at least four places in this Parsha, the Almighty comes to Abraham and pledges to him that your descendants will have this land. So the first one's right away. He gets to Israel, he settles down, and the Almighty appears to him, and he pledges that his nation, that his descendants will have this land. Right as he gets there, what's the next thing that happens? There's a famine. There's no food anywhere, which was common in antiquity. They don't have uh, the same technology and the same transportation. And you have a bad, a bad winter or a bad summer and everyone's starving. So what does he do? He goes to Egypt and he's faced with more challenges. He, on his way to Egypt, he mentions to his wife how beautiful she is, uh, in contrast to the Egyptians of the time. And he tells her very strange instruction. He says, I know now that you're beautiful. And when the Egyptians see you and they'll say, ah, oh, this is your wife, they'll kill me and they'll take you away. So instead, you should say that you're my sister, they'll do good to me, and I'll survive. That's, that's the story. And indeed, what happens, they go to Egypt, they notice Sarah, she's so beautiful, and they ask, what's the story? She says he's the, she's his sister. They take her to Pharaoh, and things don't exactly go as planned. And Pharaoh is afflicted. And he realizes that really she is married and he gives her back to, to Abraham and says, okay, here's your wife and just leave. That's the story. We could really glean from the story the morality standards of the ancient Egyptians. You know, we tend to think of them as being bar- barbaric, uncouth, not, not really sophisticated. They had a certain moral code. Their moral code meant if a woman is married, she's untouchable. Murder! That's okay, right? That happens. It's not, it's not ideal, but if, if needed, right? In case of uh, emergency, break the glass. So what does he say? He says, well, if they know that I'm, I'm your husband, then they'll kill me, because why? Because adultery, oh, that's a big no-no. Murderers, well, that's okay. It's, it's almost as if the standards that we have today are exactly flipped on their head. In our society, murder is a big no-no. Adultery, Unfortunately, it happens. In their society, it's, 
it was the opposite. Murder happens and adultery, that's a big no. And I think this really is a theme we can see throughout history where every society, unless they're governed by God, every society is able to establish for themselves their own code of morality. And they would justify it because that's what makes sense. And that's what people do. People do it. That means it's not empirical. It's not absolute. It's whatever we decide, that's what is good and bad. And I think it's interesting for us, you know, when we have Torah, the Torah establishes God's morality, then that transcends what society says. Because society could say one thing one day, and tomorrow change their mind, and how could it be that murder is moral? We don't understand it. And you know what? If we were to ask the Egyptians 4,000 years ago, that there's going to be people in a place called America, that they're going to think that adultery is... It's, we don't like to talk about it, but it happens, and it happens everywhere, and it's, and they'll say, what? Unbelievable sinners. And they look at us as, 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 if, as if the society regressed. What unsophisticated, just barbaric people live in this place called America. They do adultery unbelievable. And the truth is, is that whatever society you look at, you could find something that they just chose arbitrarily. It's arbitrary moral standards, unless you have God and Torah that says, this is what's true, this is what's proper, and that is unaffected by what society says. Abraham seems to be exposing his wife uh, for his own benefit. It's, 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 it seems a very troubling episode. Uh, he tells his wife to say that you're my sister uh, in order to save his own skin. Now, did he make a mistake or not? This is a big discussion that everyone tries to try to understand and uh, um, deconstruct this episode to see what really happened and uh, is Abraham at fault here. So the Rabban says Abraham did sin. Uh, he sinned accidentally. He didn't do it. He didn't realize what was going to happen. But he made a mistake. Now, but what was the rationale behind his mistake? Remember, Abraham, he was the same person who jumped into the fire and God saved him. How come over here he's not willing to expose himself to that same danger? The argument goes that regardless, they would have taken her. Either would have taken her by killing him or uh, they would have just you know, taken her because she's his sister. But there's some ideas here that are suggested. I think it, it does shed light onto, onto the story a little bit. Firstly, is that Abram does not rely on a miracle. We know the rule is, is that if someone relies on a miracle, miracles don't happen to them. So Abram's not going to say, oh, I'll say that she's uh, my wife and I'll survive because if you do that, then you won't survive. Pat, no, the first test, he wanted to die. He was ready. He was willing to give up his life. That's the point. To rely on a miracle would be to say, I'm jumping into the fire, but I know God will save me. There is an argument here to try to exonerate Abraham. Firstly, let's say he says, she's my wife. What happens? They'll come kill him. That's, that's who they are. He's not assuming that, she's, that he's going to survive because you don't rely on miracles. So they kill him and they take her anyhow. So what have you gained? Not only that, if he tells her to say that she's his sister, she tells him, oh, this is my brother, my husband's elsewhere, so she's still married, so then there's a chance that they don't even touch her either. 
So, yes, to us, it's sometimes surprising. Oh, what's he doing? He's exposing. The truth is, if you actually work out the permutations, this is the best choice, the best chance that he has and she has to both, to him not to die and her not to get raped. She is my sister. Her husband is elsewhere. She's married. Don't kill me because you won't help your cause. I survive. She survives. And then we're both better off. As opposed to he says, oh, I married her. He'll die. She'll be raped anyhow. So what have you gained? But I, I think, you know, the story is not just telling us this. Like, yes, we could vindicate Abraham. But again, what's the lesson for us? I think there is one lesson simply where Abraham is told, go to Israel. Things will be wonderful. Things will be great. He goes to Israel. He settles down. The first thing that happens is a famine. And what should, what would we do? We say, wait a minute. He sold me a bag, a bag of goods. Israel was the promised land, and I, I, I changed my whole life to get there. And the first thing that happens, I'm starving and I have to relocate. So that's a test, which is on its own right uh, interesting that Abraham didn't question God. But why are we need told we need to be told all these details? Oh, she's my sister, the whole story. It really is a very important lesson for us. You know, we spoke earlier about how marriage ideally ought to be eschewing the previous identity and rebuilding a new merged identity. And the problem, the reason why a lot of marriages fail is because people aren't willing to commit themselves because they don't want to, you know, they're terrified and, you know, they're fearful but just commit themselves and going all in. So they want to always kind of be at arm's length and have as many emergency exits available to them and that unfortunately does not allow the development of the of, of the relationship and the identity on a deep level. Abraham is saying here, telling his wife, you're my sister. Perhaps the lesson for us is that we ought to view our wife and our husbands as brother and sister, as a fact, as this is the way it is. When you get married, you're... A, adopting a new sibling, so to speak, that this is, just like you cannot evict your sibling, you can't make your sibling not your sibling, you're committed to them, Just that's just the way it is, it's a fact. So too, the way we have to, in our heads, reframe our relationship is that's not, this is a foreigner, no, this is someone that's part of the family, has always been part of the family, and this is the way, and it's here to stay. And I think that's a very powerful lesson. And when, you know, if we are to approach our relationships provided we're ready to commit. But when you're ready to commit, commit to the degree that you are recreating this relationship with deepening something brand new. This is a sister of mine. You are more likely to be successful. Now what happens? So she goes to Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's home and Pharaoh is stricken by illness. Why? So the verse tells us in verse 17, Hashem afflicted Pharaoh along with his household with severe plagues because of the matter of Sarai. And Pharaoh called Abraham and says, what do you do? You deceived me. How come you didn't tell me that she is your wife? Why do you tell me that she's your sister? I took her for a wife. And now here's your wife. Take her and leave. So what happened here? Pharaoh received an illness. As a result, he recognized that Sarai or Sarah 
was Abraham's husband. It's almost as if Pharaoh, we think of the people in antiquity as being very unsophisticated, very unaware of the notions of the spiritual realms. It's almost like Pharaoh is really an impressive figure here. He received an illness. Instead of saying, oh, uh, you know, how do I ameliorate this with medication? You, you, have, you have the flu. So what do you do? You don't necessarily, you know, what do we do when we have the flu? We don't say, oh, why would God give me this flu? No, that's not what we would say. We would say, well, okay, you got to go, go to the doctor, or now you, nowadays you Google it. They had a, they had a, like a spiritual sense to them to try to understand what is the spiritual underpinnings of their malady. We, as Jews, are encouraged to do that. Uh, the Talmud tells us that if someone sees <coughs> bad things happening to him, successive one after another, he should ask himself, like, what, did, what, what am I doing wrong? Like, how could I lobby God to improve my lot? And that, that, that's, a, that's a sophisticated spiritual idea. To say, things are not happening ideally, but they could be happening, but I need a change, not the circumstances. And Pharaoh, you know, it's, it's, it's a remarkable lesson that even though he had his issues, and of course they did, and they're, they're bad people, but they still had a certain spiritual sensitivity that is really admirable. So, okay, so what happens? Abraham leaves Egypt. Once again, he has Lot as his sidekick. He's traveling back north to Israel. He has a, a scuffle with Lot. He's so wealthy and so bogged down by all their livestock and cattle and sheep that they're fighting over territory. And they said, okay, it's just not working out. We're fighting. It's unfortunate. Why don't we, why don't we get some separation? You said, Abraham says, you want to go this way or that way? You choose. I'll let you choose and I'll go the other direction. And we could be friends from afar. And Lot makes the unfortunate decision to look at the city of Sodom and Amora, Sodom and Gomorrah, was so beautiful, was so lush, uh, despite the fact that these people were sinners and he chose the financial benefits of moving there over the spiritual drawbacks of moving there. And he went there and Abraham went the other direction and they departed. Right away, after Abram departed from Lot, he gets another prophecy. And this is, of course, not a coincidence. Lot was spiritually hamstringing Abraham. Abraham, you know, he was his nephew. He was someone who was there with him. But because he, there was something rot, rot, a little bit rotten about Lot, therefore, when Abraham was in his company, he couldn't always have prophecy. Lot leaves and immediately prophecy comes. And a very interesting prophecy here. He is told, 1315 first, even earlier, look everywhere, all across Canaan, all across Israel, everything that you have, everything that you see is for your children and your descendants forever. Not only that, the it's not just the land of Israel for Abraham's descendants. Remember, Abraham doesn't have any kids yet. But he also tells them that your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth, that just like if you could count the dust of the earth, so too you would be able to count your descendants. And he tells them to walk up and down the walk up and down the length of Israel. So this is the first time that the Jewish people are described to be as numerous as the sand 
and later on will also be described to be as numerous as the stars. Now, until recently, people thought there were about 6,000 stars, because that's all that's visible in the, uh, in the night sky around. It's very clear, and you are very good at, uh, yeah, at counting and not losing track. Oh, did I count that one? <laughs> it's a roughly around 6,000 stars. Now we know that uh, there is you know, trillions and trillions and trillions of stars, and that comparison makes a lot more sense. You know, how many granular, granules of sand are there in the world? It's an unfathomable number. How many stars are there? Also an unfathomable number. I would surmise that it, there's a possibility that they're actually the same number. I don't think it's beyond God's capacity to do that. Okay, so, so back to this idea. The, this idea that the Jewish people are as numerous as the sand. This is an interesting thing because we actually know about how many Jews there are in the world. Some between 14 and 18 million people. There's a lot more granules of sand in the world. So what's this idea of the Jewish people being as numerous as the sand? The Jewish people are not so numerous to merit. In fact, we're even told in Deuteronomy that we'll never be a very numerous nation. We'll be small in number. So if we're small in number, yet we're compared to being like the sand, it seems there's an inconsistency, both in the book itself. So I, I think the lesson here is as follows. That... Indeed, if you were to count how many human bodies there are in the world that are Jewish, you could come to a pretty accurate number. But when we're describing the Jewish people as almost everything that's being described in the Torah, it's giving us a spiritual spin on it. And thus, when we are discussing the Jewish nation, we're discussing a spiritual entity that is unfathomable, it's beyond comprehension in this world. We try to count the sand. Theoretically, you could, you could, you could do it, but you really can't get a, a, a firm number. So too, like, the notion of the Jewish people and their scope of influence is something you could get and access a little bit. You could kind of give us the broad strokes of it, but you can't actually nail it down to get how, of how vast it is. Now, the next event that happens is this titanic battle that happens. There's four teens against five teens. We're given the details. And Abraham gets involved because they kidnap Lot. And he is very heroic uh, in, in the battle. He's able to rescue the hostages and defeat the road teens. And they want to come congratulate him and give him all the bounty from the spoils of war. And he says, I'm not interested. Because you know why? What's going to happen if I take this? You guys will say, oh, we made Abraham rich not God, and that would cause people to forget about God. And the story continues that right afterwards, the Almighty appears to him and tells him a very strange statement. So it was after these events, the word of Hashem came to Abraham in a vision, telling him, fear not, don't be scared. I am a shield for you, your reward is very great. Abraham undertook a battle against armies. We don't know the exact details, but the odds were stacked against him. Miraculously, he was successful in his objectives. He was able to rescue the hostages and survive and thrive, no problems. Right afterwards, the Almighty reassures him that his reward is great. Now, what does that 
really show. It shows that he was maybe concerned that his reward is not great. And this, I think, is a very interesting thing we see throughout the stories of Genesis, that the greater someone is, the more they're terrified that their successes in life will take away from their reward. Jacob meets Esau, and he's terrified because he's coming towards him with an army. And he starts praying, and he tells God, I got small, I became diminutive, because of all the kindness that you did for me. And the notion is that every kindness that God does for you can be an expression of payment, so to speak, for your good deeds. And therefore, the, the better your life here is, the more the righteous are concerned that this is withdrawing from their spiritual bank account, so to speak. And therefore, the Almighty reassures them, your reward is still, is still complete. And I think that we, we have a, almost an opposing perspective on this. You know, if we show up synagogue and you know, we're good, we're good people. We're all convinced we're good people. And we're convinced that God knows that very well. And I think we're right. We are good people. But there is the sensitivity that we see with Abraham and with, and with uh, Jacob as well that we have to be very concerned to not exhaust all the rewards for our merits while we are here. Because the perspective that we have to develop is that this world is a world of activity, of creation, of preparation for Olamaba. This world is not an end game unto itself, because you know why? I've said this before. We're going to be dead a lot longer than when we're alive. Everyone. We may live long, and hopefully we'll live really long. Maybe we'll live to 150 years old. Or like Abraham, 175. We could be, but still, even Abraham has been dead for longer than he's been alive. So our objective ought to be to not look at the short term, 170 years, but to look at the long term, everything after that. And how do we invest in that world? We invest with mitzvahs, with good deeds, with, with Torah, etc. But we don't want to cash out, so to speak, on our mitzvahs while we are alive here. Because by cashing out on those precious mitzvahs, we unfortunately use them in a short-term world, in the temporary world, and then they're exhausted when we come to the permanent world. So I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example of this. Talmud tells that Rabbi Akiva went to visit his teacher, Rabbi Eliezer, who was on his deathbed. And Rabbi Eliezer is on his deathbed, and he's writhing in pain. This is from the Talmud in Sanhedrin 101a. He's in terrible agony. All the students are there. And Rabbi Eliezer is crying out in pain, and he says, oh, there's so much fury in the world. God is so angry because he's punishing me like this. And all the students start breaking down in tears. And Rabbi Akiva starts laughing. It's so embarrassing. The rabbi is suffering. Everyone's crying. Rabbi Akiva's laughing. It seems so inappropriate. So they say to him, well, why are you laughing? Like, this is not the time to laugh. And he tells him, well, why are you guys crying? Why are we crying? You have a veritable Torah scroll here, Rabbi Eliezer, the great teacher, and he's in pain, and we shouldn't cry? He says, that's exactly why I'm laughing. Because Rabbi Eliezer's whole life, things are really good for him. 
His wine, his honey, his flax, everything really is successful. Very wealthy. He has a stature in the community. I'm worried that he's using up all his reward here. And he, I never saw him suffer, so I never imagined that it's balanced out. But now that I see that he's suffering, I know that his reward in Omaba is untainted, is unsullied. So that's a strange thing for us. Like I don't imagine people going to those that are terminally ill in hospices and start laughing in, into their door. It's just so delightful. Oh, it's so good to see you like this. We don't do that. But Rekiva did, because Rekiva really sensed this world is our place of opportunity to accomplish, but that will work against us if we try to have it a world, be a world of consumption as well. We want Olam Abba to be the world of consumption. We consume all our mitzvahs here. Abram was worried about it. Jacob was worried about it. If they were worried about it, we maybe should also be, wor- be worried about it. Now, that doesn't mean that we should deliberately look for bad things. Like we, we don't believe in asceticism. We don't believe in that. We don't believe in self-flagellation. That's not a Jewish idea. Well, it's not a Jewish idea for us. Okay, Some people may have done it in the past. That's not, you know, but the, the notion that, that, that this is just an unlimited world where everything is just free and good, that's clearly demonstrated to not be true by, by Abraham. Rabbi Israel Salanter, he, he would say that this world is like a really expensive hotel. You go to a hotel and they have a little mini bar and you're like, oh, I, I can use a drink. And you take a little, uh, you know, the, a little Jack Daniels and you're like, yeah, it's, there's no, someone there. They're not charging me anything. It's, it's free to go. And what you don't realize is that once you check out, so to speak, everything's so much more expensive. What? $78 for a little Jack Daniels? That's insane. That's our world. At the time that we're here, everything seems to be free. But when we, when we check out, so to speak, everything is much more expensive than we would imagine because everything that we enjoy here is going, it can potentially detract from Olamaba and in ways, in, in figures that are not commensurate, like a, a little, a little, a little vial of alcohol is what, I don't know, $2, $3, what it should cost, but it doesn't actually work like that in this world. Uh, if you're traveling on your company's dime, all expenses paid, then you can do whatever you want, right? Uh, better yet, if you're trampling, if you're traveling, trampling might be a correct word as well, on your country's dime, and you're uh, an ambassador to the United Nations, and the, you know, Ecuador is paying for your trip. Do whatever you want, park wherever you want, you're good. So we say is that this, if we're here as ambassadors of God, then we can raid the minibar no problem. Provided that our, the, you know, the goal of our lives, uh, in totality is one that we're here to represent God, then he pays for our bills. So an, when someone, an act of kindness is an act of, a diplomatic act for God. Okay, so again, God tells him, your reward is great. And Abraham says to him, what, 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 what good is all this reward that you're promising me? I'm getting old, I don't have any kids, and this great nation and all these descendants that you promised me, none of that, I don't see any of that. All I have is Eliezer, right-hand man, and he's going to have everything, and the mighty promises, no, that one will not inherit you, only your children will inherit you. And he takes them outside and he says, look out towards the heaven, count the stars if you're able to count them. 
And the Almighty tells him, so shall your offspring be. Your offspring are now compared to the sand previously, and now they're compared to the stars. And this is an interesting thing, because for God, it's as easy to create a granule of sand as it is to create a star. Those are not difficult. Those are the exact, exact same amount of effort the Almighty has to expend to create those two very contrasting things. And we're compared to both of them. The Jewish people are, are as numerous as the sand, but as the stars. And why would the, these seem to be very different metaphors from our perspective? And I think the lesson for us is that we choose, if we're numerous and insignificant as sand, where every granule of sand doesn't really contribute, or we're numerous and vital like the stars, that one star, our sun, really regulates everything. We can only live because of one, of one star. And a Jew could be a sand, could be, you know, not really so impressive and transformative, or they could be like the sun that is able to give life to the whole world and to give clarity and vision to the whole world and to give warmth to the whole world. And in fact, Moshe is compared to the star, to the, to the sun. Jewish people can look at Moshe. He had to wear a mask. Talmud tells the face of Moshe was the face of the sun. He was a star. And, and what did he do? He gave Torah to the Jewish people. He gave guidance. He gave food and water. Everything. He brought the Jewish people out of Egypt. One man, a descendant of Abraham, was like the star. And the point is, is that it's really up to us to determine where along the spectrum from sand to star we fall. That's our opportunity. Opportunity is to be, we could be as great as, Mos, as Moses, as the Ramam tells us. We could be as insignificant as, unfortunately, a lot of Jews have been, where they, you know, were caught up in the trappings of this world and, unfortunately, forgot about their permanent life and permanent world. And they lived their life with those ideals and they behaved in that manner. And they weren't really significant. They, had, they didn't really change the trajectory of the world. Or the, they didn't invest in their soul and tend to its agenda. And unfortunately, they were more sandy than, than starry. But that's the point. The point is, is that we are given all the opportunities. We have to choose where we fit along that line. A very surprising episode happens over here. Sarai, the wife of Abraham, is in her 70s. She doesn't have any kids. But she does have a maidservant, Hagar, and she makes this really bizarre proposal in chapter 16, verse 2. Behold, the Almighty has restrained me from giving birth. Why don't you marry my maidservant? Perhaps I will be built through her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. You, you will be surprised to know that Hagar was the daughter of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is, a, is, a, is honorific, so we're not, it's not clear if it's the he same Pharaoh or it's a different one. I, I would assume it's the same one, because remember, a, Abraham had interactions with Pharaoh. Pharaoh was obviously someone who had a spiritual sensitivity, as we mentioned, and it's very likely he said, okay, why don't you, you, know, why don't you take my daughter as, a, as an apprentice? Uh, with you. You know, today, it doesn't seem likely that Obama would send his daughters to go study by the rabbis as an apprentice. Now, what's a few things that are interesting here. What is Sarah? Sarah's making a calculation. 
She's saying the Almighty stopped me from having babies, which, first of all, that's an interesting perspective that Sarah has. She doesn't have any kids, and she doesn't attribute it to her infertility or her fallopian tubes or whatever. She's blaming it on God. Not blaming it, but she's associating, attributing it to God. And that's really the spiritual perspective. Yes, of course, God employs uh, physical factors to contribute towards infertility, but she automatically just attributes it, back, attributes it back to its source. Sometimes a symptom is a result of an underlying disease. And it's unfortunate people address just the symptom. They don't actually fix the problem. Sarah viewed her infertility as a symptom of whatever reason God didn't want her to have kids. So therefore, she, the way, how do you see the problem? You see the problem is, well, God doesn't want me to have kids for whatever reason. So what's her solution? That her husband should marry Hagar, and through that she will get built. Doesn't seem to really connect. What does her husband, Abraham, marrying Hagar, how does it in any way equate to Sarah having her own children? So simply we would understand it uh, that Hagar would have a child, and that would Hagar would be like a surrogate for for Sarai, that her child will be almost Sarai's child. But actually, if you read the story, clearly that was not her intention. But what happened? After, indeed, Hagar did become pregnant, and she did have a child, and twice, Sarah sent Hagar, and then, Sarah, and then ultimately Sarah sent Hagar and her new child away. So clearly it wasn't her intention to have the loving relationship with this new baby. So what is this idea that she's going to be built through Abraham marrying Hagar. So this is an interesting idea. Sarah has a different perspective on illness than we do. We look at pathology in entirely physical and natural terms. She looked at pathology entirely in spiritual realm. She says, I'm, I don't have a baby. Well, that's because of God. Therefore, if I wanted to intercede and try to change the situation, I wouldn't try to go to the fertility expert, I'd go to God. Well, how do you intercede upon God? You have to offer God some sort of spiritual activity to equal a spiritual result. So Sarai is saying, I know that God can make me have a child, because that's the reason why I don't have a child. But in order to do that, I have to do something spiritual. Well, what, what, what can I do that's spiritual? Well, what if I suggest to my husband to marry my apprentice? You know, someone who is uh, under my stewardship. Is there anything more humiliating in the world than for a woman to have to give up her husband for her underling? Nothing. Sarai is saying, my spiritual contribution is going to be the fact that I am going to allow into my own home, someone who is inferior to me in the pecking order, so to speak, someone who's working for me, my maidservant, I'm going to give up my husband for, for, for her, and that act of dedication is a spiritual act that will result in me also having my own child. But this just shows how, how, how she's thinking. What happens afterwards? Let's look what happens afterwards. Sarai takes Hagar and she gives him to Abraham 
and she becomes pregnant. And what happens in verse 4? Her mistress, i.e. Sarai, is lowered in her in her esteem. And Sarai tells Abraham, she's not happy, she's outraged, the outrage against me is due to you. It was I who gave my maidservant into your bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became lowered in her esteem. Let Hashem judge between me and you. And Abraham tells Sarai, Behold, your maidservant is in your hand. Do to her as you see fit. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. And she goes, and she meets the angel, and she ends up going back, and he foretells that you'll have a child named Ishmael, and he's become a great a great and wild maniac, but a great a father of a great nation. So why is Sarai treating Hagar so poorly? Abraham and Sarai, these these were spiritual icons of the world. They had followers and movements, and people would send their their children to go study under their tutelage. Now, Sarai has a student, Hagar. She uses the student to try to help her achieve her spiritual objective to be built from her. But then what happens? The student gets to her head. Hagar is like, oh yeah, you know, we're equals, me and Sarai. So in an effort to help her student overcome her feelings, her her arrogant feelings to look down at Sarai, she treated her harshly in uh, in, in order she would be able to uh, overcome that negative character. And by the way, what does the angel tell her? Tell her. So she goes and she meets the angel. Hagar does, and the angel tells her in verse nine. And the angel of Hashem said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her domination. What does that mean? Why would the angel give her that advice? What the angel is telling her, you are better off being taught harshly from Sarai because you'll become a better person. And indeed, you'll have a great legacy. Hagar has a baby. She names him Yishmael. And Abraham is 86 at this time. So 11 years have elapsed since the beginning of the parsha. And Yishmael is now part of the family, and Hagar is still there, and I would assume uh, Sarai is still being a little tough on her. In chapter 17, we have another remarkable prophecy that Abraham has, where he's told by God, walk before me and be perfect. God says to him, this is what I promised to you, you should be a father of multitude of nations. Your name shall no longer be Abraham, it should be called Abraham. For I made you a father of multi- multitude of nations. You'll be exceedingly fruitful, and and um, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and make many nation, many nations of you. A king shall descend from you. I will ratify my covenant between me and you, and between your offspring after you throughout the generations, as an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your offspring. And I will give you and your offspring the land of your sojourns, the whole land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession. And I shall be a God for you. And then he tells them the very first in direct instruction, a mitzvah that should be a continuous mitzvah, and as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout generations. What is it? Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and that shall be a sign of the covenant to me and you. How old? When you're eight days, at the age of eight days, every male among you shall be circumcised throughout your generations. And then God continues, and Sarai, your wife, do not call her Sarai, rather Sarah, I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son through her. 
I will bless her and she shall give rise to nations. Teams of people shall rise from her. And Abraham is, of course, very perplexed. How shall a child be born to a hundred-year-old man? And shall Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? Remember, Abraham was 86. So this is uh, at least 13 years later. And Abraham says to God, well, at least give us, give me Ishmael, that's good enough. Nonetheless, the Almighty responds, your wife Sarah will bear you a child. You should name him Isaac. And I will fulfill my covenant for you. And the Parsha ends where Abraham circumcises himself. Abraham circumcises all his people of his household. Abraham circumcises Ishmael. Ishmael's at the age of 13, 13 when he was circumcised, which is why some of the Muslims had, have, had or have a tradition to circumcise when they're 13. And that's where the Parsha ends. There's this mitzvah. This, this is like the first mitzvah really in the Torah for the Jewish people is the mitzvah of, of circumcision. And it's given to Abraham right before Isaac is actually born, because this is before Isaac is born. Uh, it's one of the tests, and it's really the foundational mitzvah of Abraham. In fact, in the circumcision ceremony that we do today, the blessing actually says, Lahachniso bevriso shall Abraham avinu, to enter a child into the bris, into the covenant of Abraham, our forefather. So, encapsulated in this mitzvah is everything that Abraham really stood for. As an introduction, we know that the Yetzirah is given in the Talmud multiple names. There's, what is the Yetzirah? Yetzirah introduced by, by Adam, given a lot of different names. One of the names is Oral, which means foreskin. So whenever we're describing the bris milah on the spiritual level, it refers to cutting off the Yetzirah in the foreskin and revealing the crown. It's almost as if there's, there's the, the symbolism in this mitzvah that represents the Jewish mission and really the undoing of Adam's sin. Adam had God everywhere. The crown of God was exposed in the world. He opted to cover it up by, in, by introducing the Yetzirah. Yetzirah is an alternative to God. It's a foreign God. And the hope is that we can find someone, maybe perhaps a people, that will undertake the effort of undoing that sin, of removing the Yetzirah and thereby exposing the crown of glory of God in the world. And thus the mitzvah of Brismila is really symbolic of that, where the foreskin is compared to the Yetzirah. You remove that and you expose the underlying crown of God in the world. And I think it really dovetails nicely with how we started. Noah had a, a bris, a covenant with the Almighty. His covenant started off, the Yetzirah is here to stay. But I'll keep the people alive anyhow. Abraham is given a covenant with God, and the covenant is, no, to get rid of the Yetzirah and to upgrade the standards of humanity once again to the, to, to the dream of the destiny of once again removing the Yetzirah from the existence and not just surviving, but actually achieving the greatness or that was present with Adam and hopefully will not be present just in the form of Abraham or the Jewish people or Moses, but in the whole world at large. When understanding the mitzvah of brismila, we're giving, brismila is the Hebrew word for circumcision, bris is covenant, mila is circumcision. So we're given a lot of different reasons in the Talmud and in the Jewish sources as to why exactly 
we have this mitzvah. So the first thing is, you know, the notion of tikkun olam, fixing the world, that supposes the world is broken. And this mitzvah also supposes that we're not perfect. We, we are born with a problem that needs to be fixed. And that really is representative of life at large, that we're not born perfect, and thus we need to perfect the imperfect. That's number one. Number two, the Ramban points out that the epicenter of the Yetzirah's dominion over man's life is specifically in the location where the mitzvah of the brismila is given. Thirdly, this is the only mitzvah that's actually etched into someone's body. It's almost as if like it's you're inseparable from it. You have Shabbos, it's once a week. You have a mezuzah in your house, outdoors and there's no mezuzah. You wear tefillin in the morning and you take them off at night. Tzitzis are only during the day. You only say blessings certain times. Like there's every mitzvah we touch the mitzvah and then we, and then we, and then we move on. This is a mitzvah that is forever attached to the Jew. And in fact, the Talmud tells that King David was in a bathhouse and he got depressed. Why did he get depressed? Because in a bathhouse there's no mezuzahs on the door. So he's in a, he's in a bathhouse and he says, I don't have any single mitzvah. I'm not wearing my tefillin. I can't study Torah here. There's no mezuzah on the door. Nothing. And then it says he looked at his bris milah and he was assuaged by the fact that there's always a mitzvah with him. There's constants that whenever, wherever someone is, he has this mitzvah. And lastly, it's really the mitzvah that represents our connection to Abraham. It's the one mitzvah that the people of the nations of the world really despise more than any other because it really represents what we are standing for. No mitzvah over the course of history has been banned as frequently as the mitzvah of circumcision, because it really represents, it gets to the heart of what it means to be Jewish. And I think if we take all these reasons and put them together, we really have an image of what life as a Jew means. Life as a Jew is, yes, we come with the understanding that we're not perfect, the world needs perfection, and we need to do it. God gives us an almost perfect product, we need to polish it, we need to fix it. Number one, how do you fix it? What, what's the problem? The problem is we have a Yetzirah. Yetzirah obscures God. And it causes us to, unfortunately, focus on the temporary life and not the permanent life. And is manifested mostly by, uh, by, the, uh, by the sexual sins, which is precisely the one area where there's such a discrepancy between the potential of creating something that, you know, that's so vast and so numerous versus something which is so temporary and, you know, and fleeting. And this notion is so important for us to remember. We have to have it with us at all times. Because when you have this mitzvah with you, uh, or it's so critical, so crucial, you cannot forget about it for a second. It's about revealing the crown of God in the world. And it is what makes us Jewish and is the stamp of the Abrahamic fraternity. Once Abraham has this, he really is demonstrating that he stands for more than what Noah represented. He stands for undoing the Yetzirah to begin with. And in next week, we really see how his legacy is, is, uh, is born with the stories of, of, of Isaac and the cementing of Abraham as one of the greatest, most transformative leaders who have ever lived.